Well, welcome, folks. This is Marcy Timmerman. I'm the Executive Director of Mental Health America of Kentucky. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, today is uh, Thursday, December 15th of 2022, just for context, in case anything we talk about changes over the course of the time between now and when you hear or see this video, as we are recording today. I want to make sure that folks do remember um, who are joining us live to keep your camera off if you don't want to have your Based on uh, the recording, and also please stay muted unless you're asking a question. Um, but thank you for joining us today, and and thank you, Dr. Ellswick, for giving it, Ellswick for giving us some of your time. Um, I would like to go ahead and let you introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Alex Ellswick. I'm a, a native Lexingtonian, and um, I'm currently an assistant extension professor at University of Kentucky for substance use prevention and recovery. And um, that means I'm like a, a special kind of professor because I think I'm special. So I get to do traditional teaching in the classroom and traditional research, but really the, the majority of my, my job is doing kind of what we're doing today, is doing research translation, getting, getting the information out into the hands of people who need it. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. That's amazing. Well, I know you have a personal story, kind of why you're connected with the work you are. If you want to talk a little bit about your story and kind of your journey and and really your focus there at UK. Sure. Yeah. So when I was 18, uh, I wanted to go to law school for no reason other than uh, I thought I would make money and it seemed like a, a thing to do. And I ended up getting addicted to opioids. Uh, I had uh, wisdom teeth removed um, and I had this procedure done. I got prescribed opioids and I got addicted to them. Addiction took me all those places that addiction takes people. And I went to jail on drug trafficking charges and I went in and out of treatment uh, many, many times. And I ended up homeless in a few different cities and um, ended up getting into recovery at a Salvation Army in Dayton, Ohio. You know, when I when I graduated the Salvation Army, I really had nothing. I didn't have much in the way of support. I didn't know where I was going to live, all these kinds of things. And my community just showed up for me. I'm, I'm, I'm immensely privileged and and as a consequence of that, I just got all the things that I needed. I had help with housing and education and transportation and all the things. And so um, really I've made it my mission. I kind of just feel obligated because I was given those things um, to try to reproduce that for other people. So that's what that's what um, I try to do with my work at University of Kentucky and also with our nonprofit at, at Voices of Hope. It's fantastic to hear. And yeah, he is a founder of Voices for Hope, right? I believe is the right title for you. One of the two founders. Um, so it's nice to have you. And the work is amazing that you all do there um, and that you're doing at UK since you have left there and moved on to kind of the professorship. Um, what is kind of the focus of your research, though, and the work that you're doing to translate out into the, to the community? My role covers the continuum of prevention and recovery. So a lot of my work has been on uh, writing grants to bring evidence-based prevention programs to Kentucky schools, things like that. But my passion and the focus of my research is long-term recovery. So uh, for a lot of folks who aren't as familiar with addiction, the only really understanding that folks have of how people get better is, is treatment. Um, and just sort of have this sense that people get addicted, they go to treatment and they're kind of cured and they get out and they're better. And it turns out that's that's not the, that's not the reality at all. Uh, most people who get into recovery won't go to treatment at all. Um, and so it's really about uh, providing resources to, to support people over the, the long term. That's awesome to hear. 
that's really cool. I don't think I knew that. So <laughs> I didn't know what you were researching these days. I'm like, we haven't caught up in forever. Um, so that's great to hear. And I really am looking forward to seeing more of that in the long run. So come back to us for, for sure when some of that research wraps up. There's so many good programs out there. Um, Billy, are there some general hallmarks of what good programs look like for long-term recovery? Or is there short-term programs that are more functional and helpful that you know of that are here in Kentucky or that are need to come to Kentucky? <laughs> That's a really interesting question in terms of what constitutes like quality treatment because yeah. it kind of exists. And I, I gather, I'm not as familiar with mental health, although I'm a trained therapist, I guess I should be, but addiction is just a very black box kind of space. There isn't a universal credential for treatment centers. There isn't an agreed upon standard necessarily on what constitutes good treatment. SAMHSA publishes um, some helpful guidelines for you know some principles of effective tr treatment that involve things like long-term. So it's treatment that, that acknowledges the chronic nature of addiction, you know, using evidence-based practices. So there are some indicators, but um, it really creates a challenge for family members for concerned others and for people who are addicted uh, when it comes time to try to find help uh, because definitely help is available, but it's, it's really difficult to be an informed consumer. Yeah. I wish we had a cliff notes, like bulleted list, but there just isn't one, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Good to know that there still isn't because as soon as there is, I will be shouting it from the rooftops, but I'm not sure that there is. Addiction is a big word for a lot of varied things too. I think we should acknowledge that in this conversation. So, you know, and it's never easy, right? It's never as simple as, as go to treatment. Like you said, it, it is a long-term commitment. It is not, it looks different for each person. I think we should acknowledge that too. I know that you believe that as well and have seen it in evidence. It's not just a belief. I should clarify. Um, mm -hmm. That is an evidence-based statement, right? It is different for each person. And, and you talked a little bit with your own story about how, you know, relapse happened and, and that you were lucky, you know, in the long run, but you had multiple relapses, right? You had multiple instances of treatment and relapse. And I think um, a lot of our mental health folks don't always recognize that. Yeah, um, my comment really was, you know, that I know that you've been through some long-term recovery and, and had multiple issues, though, of relapse. And I really think I want to make sure that it's clear to our mental health audience that, you know, relapse is something we should expect from folks and that we learn from it, right? I think that's a change and a shift in our generation of, of treatment providers and professionals and advocates um, to really understand that. And, and that's new, right? Like that's a new concept and, and it's okay if that's new to you, but I think anyone who's known someone who's been through even the AA model knows that there's space for that, right? There's space built in and a good AA model even to, you know, this is, this is going to happen. What happens when it happens? Who do you call when it happens? Right. Are there other safety pieces that we should make sure we, we tell our mental health folks who maybe aren't as familiar with working in the substance use arena, some of those basics. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad you, you, you bring up relapse. It's actually, you were asking about the research we've been doing. I'm writing a paper with mm -hmm. Dr. Val Bennett, who's another one of our co-founders at Voices. Uh, about this very thing, about the way we think about relapse and the way that we regard people who have relapsed or returned to use. And one way of thinking about it that's interesting is we we largely agree across the board that addiction is a disorder of some kind. And we understand that when people are in their addiction. And then when someone has a period of abstinence and then returns to use, it's like all of a sudden we have forgotten that we 
decided this was a disorder. And we all of a sudden, all this moralistic language emerges around choice and deciding and not wanting recovery enough or not being willing enough or all these kinds of things. Um, and it's it's like, hey, that's a real paradigm shift because two weeks ago we were talking about a disorder and now we're talking about choices. And so I say that to say it's it is the nature of a chronic disorder. Uh, when you look at at if you compare relapse rates of substance use disorder against relapse rates of other chronic dis disorders like hypertension or asthma um, or diabetes, they're all roughly somewhere between 40 and 60 percent. So it really just shows um, addictions and other chronic disease. Relapse is often a part of that process. And so rather than punishing people who are experiencing a relapse, it's much more helpful uh, to characterize that as a moment at which someone needs support rather than punishment and to provide that. Yeah, we need to build a system that responds to that and to that new information, even though it shouldn't be new to us, perhaps, because uh, it's always existed. But, you know, now that we have a better way of saying it, perhaps we can work on the system improving that. And that actually brings me to a couple of the questions that I kind of prepared you to answer. So thanks for kind of off the cuffing it with me for a little bit. Um, but what barriers do you see that still exist to treatment? It sounds like really not understanding recovery and and that relapse happens is one of them, but are there other barriers you're seeing? I think the biggest barrier that I see is, is, is a system-wide failure, which is that we wait for people to come to treatment, that the whole model says you need to come to us. And in particular, because the whole model is based on abstinence, what it's really saying is you've got to be ready and willing to want to be abstinent today in order to access treatment and care. And what that does is that means if you look at the spectrum of people who have substance use disorders, it means only a small fraction of them are really going to have access to treatment because they're the only ones who are treatment seekers. The vast majority of people who use drugs are not treatment seekers. And so at some point you have to ask the question, how, how are we going to meet the needs of the majority of people in our communities who are addicted, but who are not showing up at our treatment centers? To me, that's that's the biggest that's the biggest problem. That's the biggest barrier. There needs to be more uh, like outreach based models, more of meet people where they are, go to where people are literally and figuratively. But then beyond that, um, I, I think generally speaking, treat, treatment access has improved pretty considerably, uh, addiction treatment access over the last decade or so, particularly in Kentucky. Um, but there are some exceptions and there are some really notable exceptions, particularly with regard to medications for opioid use disorder. So people who use methadone or buprenorphine in particular as a part of their recovery, our entire system is really not set up to support them. So there are lots of barriers to, to getting initiated on the medications in the first place. There are barriers to retention. And then if you're on medication, you're going to experience barriers to finding housing because our halfway house sober living model is set up for abstinence, not for people who are taking these medications. You're going to have trouble finding support groups where people actually support the kind of recovery that you're in, you know, so um, lots of issues there around medication in, in particular. Yeah, I definitely find that MAT, which is medication assisted treatment for anyone who doesn't know that that terminology. I know it's a it's an acronym. Uh, so, yeah, MAT is very hard, whatever it might look like. Right. Not just related to methadone and buprenorphine. But as we look at other medications for other addictions, I think there's a lot of work going on right now in cocaine treatment and, and methamphetamine treatment as well. Some possible solutions out there, which would be great. Um, for the folks that are affected by those <laughs> addictions, but, you know, also can have the same problems, right? They may have an element of something that could be abused and therefore aren't welcome in a lot of those settings. And 
it saddens me to hear that that's still a barrier. I was working in this space, you know, for 15 years now. And I just, it's like, we, we've been talking about it forever. We need to build better spaces. I do think Kentucky is trying. Um, and I hope that you see that as well. I hope that's your experience. Um, we're, we're slowly getting there. <laughs> yeah, heading in the right direction. I think um, we're starting to do more of the things we need to do. One, one really easy example of the way that we reduce this stigma around the medications in particular is every time we lift up an example to try to like champion somebody in recovery, invariably it's somebody who's completely abstinent and abstinence has been their path of recovery. And like, to be clear, just as a disclaimer, I have nothing against abstinence. That's my pathway to recovery. It's the, the safest approach. If everybody wanted to be abstinent, that's what I would wish for them. But then it doesn't always work that way, right? Um, so yeah, I think it, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm really kind of segging into, I really think the successes in Kentucky. Um, what successes have you seen since you started working kind of in this space as a person in recovery in Kentucky? Yes, in Kentucky, definitely the conversation around addiction, broadly speaking, has changed. The stigma surrounding substance use disorder broadly is, is, is changing in the right direction, again, with those notable exceptions of medications and also of, of people who use drugs. So this is a, maybe a weird thing to point out, but yeah, everybody who's in recovery today was once upon a time a person who uses drugs. And yet we, we sort of treat these as if they're two totally categorically distinct groups of people. And so we say, well, people in recovery are the good ones and the people who use drugs are the bad ones. And instead we have to have more of a paradigm shift that says people who use drugs are the folks who are in the earliest stages of their recovery. So I think some of that needs to change. We talked about the access to treatment, certainly in the, the Kentucky landscape, um, access to treatment has rapidly improved in really across the board in terms of accessing all different types of treatment. I think the, the rhetoric about shifting away from criminalizing addiction has improved. I think in practice, we've seen no change. And, and, and I say that because there are you know, still bills being proposed every day to increase minimums for uh, fentanyl trafficking. And just, just it's just one thing after another where we're like, we know that prohibition has failed. We know what the war on drugs has given us. It's time to go in a different direction. So we're saying the right things. And I think the rhetoric has to precede the, the change in action. So I'm glad to hear the right things. Now I'm just hoping to see, to see the change. Agreed. There's definitely two conversations happening at the same time. With what bills are being filed and what things are being said on the floor and in the committee, I agree. They tend to be different and they don't see the disconnect. So I guess it's up to advocates like us to create that, that path of understanding for those folks. Um, on what needs to happen. I, I totally agree. And I, we're still working to um, decriminalize fentanyl trusting strips. So um, for those who are not familiar, fentanyl trusting strips are out there. Fentanyl is finding its way into all kinds of drugs that have nothing to do with opiates whatsoever. Um, a lot of very sneaky things like Adderall tablets that are being sold on the black market. Um, or, you know, from person to person, have fentanyl in them. Um, we found them, they were laced into marijuana cigarettes at the very beginning of COVID. I mean, these are things that are relatively less problematic or less dangerous uh, substances that folks might use, I would say. Less is probably a strong word, but, you know, those are like those early gateway drugs, right? Those happen and people tend to see them as less serious. Mm -hmm. And we were seeing fentanyl in those, um, and, and fentanyl is a very dangerous drug. It causes overdose, um, sometimes in first use often because it's a lot stronger than folks think, and it looks like salt. 
So finding it and recognizing it and it melts down like salt. Um, so it can be in a liquid form. Um, so having test strips, if you are someone who ever does anything like that, so maybe you run out of your pain pills and you're buying them from a friend, having a fentanyl test strip is helpful to make sure the fentanyl is not in that particular substance. And we, we are calling that drug paraphernalia and we're getting people arrested for having something that is helpful on them. Um, we fought hard. I know you and I and several other advocates fought hard to get, um, you know, Narcan not on that list. And uh, the VA, the Veterans Administration, can't give any fentanyl strips out in the country as long as it's illegal in one state. So we have to think about the ramifications, not just for Kentucky, but elsewhere, correct? So am I right in all of that, <laughs> saying it correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Fentanyl is is really, it's it's something different. I mean, it really is almost more appropriate to talk about drug poisoning sometimes than drug overdoses because folks aren't overdosing. They're not taking too much of a drug. They're they're taking something and, and not not always knowing exactly what's in the drug that they're taking. So having an instrument that allows allows you to figure out what's actually in the drug that you're taking is a really critical intervention. And we have that technology already available. And yeah, and I think it's mostly stigma that prevents us from from, from legalizing it. I, I think there's rarely a political will um, to move away from cr criminalization. So that's just a, a problem of politics in general and probably a conversation for another, a different kind of podcast. But um, yeah. yeah, definitely us, the, the social service providers, we're at the tip of, of those problems. Yeah, and you know, the family members and advocates who, who watch us, I think it's important to recognize that, yeah, this sucks. If you're someone who has lost someone to this death and that's important to you, please reach out to MHA Kentucky and and I'll be happy to help you um, with the online frontline group. We're not the first conversation to have this conversation and, and we won't be the last to work on that issue um, publicly. So, but we're happy to get you to the frontline folks who are, who are doing it every day, who, who live and breathe it. Cause I think that's important. And actually that segs me a little bit into like why we haven't been there. The silos between mental health and substance use. You even mentioned as a clinician that you're not as familiar with the mental health side. Yeah. We just sort ourselves into one camp or the other. Do you see that as a barrier or as something that is just kind of always going to be there? Or is that a system failure? I'd love to hear more about what you think on that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I'd characterize it, but I'd agree that it's a big problem. Uh, it's a huge problem because, you know, substance, well, first of all, substance use disorder, it's, it's, it's a, it's an, it has an ICD-10 code. It's a, it's in the DSM-5. It is a mental disorder, first of all. So right. we kind of talk about them like they're different, but um, the, it's really a, a classic chicken and an egg problem when you have comorbid mental health disorders and substance use disorder. And too often, the way that we've addressed it, like the way that we address so many other aspects of addiction, is we've demanded that people get abstinent first. And so an example of this, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but even the clinic where I was trained, we had a policy that said if a family or a couple came in and want a part of the presenting problem involved an alcohol or a substance use disorder, we mandated that that individual would have to bring us a certificate to show evidence that they completed treatment before we would begin working with them in providing care. And it, it, it creates such an immense barrier. What it meant was not that people were going to treatment first and then coming to be seen in our clinic. It meant they weren't being seen in our clinic at all, right? Um, yeah. And so I, I think you're right that we have to break down the walls probably some more like inter interdisciplinary collaboration and some more cross-disciplinary trainings to understand more of the issues on the other side so that we're more prepared to do both at the same time. I, I don't know how you can effectively address addictions for people who have uh, co-occurring mental health disorders 
uh, without addressing those at the at the beginning and all throughout. I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. I, the weird thing about the clinic I learned about this stuff in was the provider was one of the first to to not kick people out for not being abstinent and her buprenorphine clinic because they might be using marijuana and they talked about it if they were upfront about it, you know, and we can deal with that relapse or that particular substance being part of their life. And what, what tools did it do? The questions that we asked were, you know, what did that do for you? Or why did you, or what was the circumstance and learn from it, right? Rather than kicking them out of treatment. And, and I think that was weird. I, I've learned how weird of an anomaly that is for me uh, to have had that practice experience. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would say one of the things that I tend to say, and I'm questioning whether or not I'm valid still, since you're you're into the research space more so than me, and, and I've been out of this world for a little while on the SUD side, I really don't feel like anyone uses substances if they're really mentally well. Now, whether they have an illness or not is not really necessarily the at play, right? Uh, mental illness is a whole thing, but I don't think we reach for substances if we're in a good, stable place. Is that kind of your experience to working with folks who are, are in recovery? Honestly, I I would say that's true of I would say that's true of people who have a problematic relationships with substances. But okay. uh, mm -hmm. but I think really substance use is just a lot more common than we realize, and and really non problematic substance use is more common than we realize. So we we all probably realize that 90% of people drink alcohol without having problems. But it would shock people to realize that 90% of people who use cocaine do it without any problems or, you know, or fentanyl for that matter. So still, the underlying point you're making is good when when people have a problematic relationship with substances, there's a reason. <laughs> if nothing else, there is a reason. It's not it's not because they're bad and it's not because they're stupid or immoral or whatever, you know. It's not even necessarily a choice, right? It's, it's where they are um, and where they're at. So, yeah. And you're right. I, I forget sometimes even in my work, I know better than everyone is always having a problematic use because you're right. You know, we have problematic uses of caffeine, right? Like, and people accept that and nicotine and people accept that that they don't think about marijuana and things in that sense. But we do have to get away from that thinking. So thanks for pointing that out and correcting me. I appreciate that. Because yeah, it's part of the conversation that has to change. Are there other things? I think that is probably one of the big things you want Kentuckians to know about substance use. But are there any other things that you find yourself like just wishing people would take away from your conversations? <laughs> uh, usually when people ask a version of that question, my gut response is, what I want people to know about addiction is that addiction is suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think we characterize addiction in lots of different ways, but that's, that was my experience more than anything else is I suffered and it was a protracted suffering for like years. And so I'm, I'm, I almost take offense when people will talk about someone getting high while they're addicted. Like you get high when you smoke pot when you're 15, but you don't get high when you're, when you're addicted, you're, you're actually neurochemically unable to get high anymore. You actually reach a, a, a brain state called anhedonia, which means no pleasure. It's literally meaning your brain is absolutely miserable. Um, and that's what addiction is. And so I, 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 first, I want people to know that, that, that people are, who are addicted are suffering, period. Um, and then I think the second most important thing for me, that abstinence and recovery are not the same thing. That when you ask, uh, if I go to a community and I'm helping a community solve their addiction crisis, and I ask them, um, what's your what's your vision for your for this community when we've done this work well? People don't raise their hands and say, 
everyone can pass a 12 panel drug test. That's what I want for my community. Like that's absurd. That's not what people say. People say, I want less crime. I want safer neighborhoods. I want better schools. I want, right? Those are the things that we actually care about. And so that should be our, our focus. Well, that's a really good point. And you, you raise a parallel there for me. Um, in the mental health space and the mental illness space, especially, we talk about recovery being a journey and not a destination. And I think that, that we should look at that more with the SUD side of things when folks have a problematic relationship, that it's a it's a situation, right? It's not a, I started and I'm symptom free today, which might be abstinence free in their case. But that's not necessarily our goal at first. Recovery can look like I'm going to my therapist once a week. I'm getting the MAT every day, like yes. what, every day or weekly or however it's set up, right? Like I'm doing the thing to, to start the process. And and you're right. I think that brings out also the more damaging relationship we talked about in that office that had a, a, a no-go policy, right? Like they're reaching right. out for help. Why aren't we embracing them where they, where they are right now? Why yes. are we not helping and them while, on the <laughs> And while I can understand the logic of saying it would be helpful to address your addiction in order to address this family conflict, you can also see the logic of doing it the other way around and saying for anyone who has a family, you can imagine that if you reduce the conflict in your family, it might make you want to drink less. I mean, that that seems pretty logical, right? That's that's yeah. it's also what the research would suggest. So, you know. Yeah, I think we're we're shifting that way. Hopefully, we'll start seeing that more commonly throughout the country. I hope so. Um, that's one of my hopes for this. Um, are there gaps in services that we haven't talked about? I don't think we talked about gaps so much. We talked about some problems, but are there like holes that people keep falling through? Other than that initial instance? Yeah. Um, well, yes. So the, the first gap, I would go back to that outreach idea. And so I won't, mm -hmm. won't replenish the whole thing again, but just okay. the sense that there's a gap in the sense that there are people who are ready for some type of change. They're ready to reduce the harm associated with their drug use, to find a way to use more safely, to use more pragmatically, to integrate it better in their life, to cause less conflict in their life. They, they, they have goals to improve. And yet, because those goals don't include abstinence, we say, go away. And we literally, in some programs, we teach people to say things like, come back when you're ready. We say things like, come back when you're willing. And I'm just telling you that in the interim, my friends die. And it happens every day that my friends die in the gap. And then we, and then we sort of just say, well, I guess they weren't ready. And I, I wholly and roundly reject that. They're, they're, I've never met a human being who wasn't ready to be happier and healthier. That's a good point. And we also kind of mentioned also the recovery housing barriers and things like that. I think there's a gap there in general too. There's just not enough spaces for, you know, folks who are maybe without things, right? Who are stuck in that space that you might've been in had you not had a great support system, right? To pull on that system, that, that history of yours and personal experience. I feel like we still don't cover the gaps for people between what happens when I get out of a residential treatment and what happens to get back to work. and and can I work because I have this gap in my system, right? <laughs> RC, in some of the some of the counties where I go to do extension work, um, I was in an Eastern Kentucky county uh, two months ago, and folks there were telling me how when when someone is gets gets a drug charge, they get arrested, they're incarcerated in the county jail. When they get released, they get released out the front door of the county jail. And I and I thought that was like a euphemism or like a, a phrase they were using. No, they literally mean they just open the gate and send you out the front door. And so you think about people in some of these communities who experience homelessness, who 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 uh, it, 
it's the most untenable thing in the world. So you're right. The housing is, is an incredibly big gap. On top of that, th it also goes back to the conversation we were having about how it's difficult to find credentialed um, halfway houses or, or treatment centers. The same is true of halfway houses, that there are lots of folks who buy a property and say, I'm, I'm a sober living place. And they, and they don't really do anything that makes it effectively sober living beyond take rent checks. Um, and then on the other end, there are people who do it, who, who pour their heart and soul into making sure that it's a supportive environment and that it's a place where, where people are going to recover. And we haven't done a good job so far of distinguishing between the two for folks. Great. There are a couple models out there folks want to learn more, but we can, we can put those in our show notes and in the YouTube links for, for where you find those models that are hopefully doing the right things, but there aren't people who police. So um, as you find you know, good and bad, please let MHA know. Um, I'd be happy to, you know, keep a sort of backroom list of we're concerned about and we're great with, you know. Um, but I do think that varies too, based on who's running it at the time. So there's a lot of variability in that space. And that's true. And there's maybe someday we'll be able to collaborate against like a good question list, <laughs> things like that to help vet some of those. Because I think that would help just consumers have a, have a clue somewhere to start, right? Because that's, so often, I think family members as well find them in this themselves in this stigmatized space, and they have to choose between believing the stigma or believing what we know to be true now, right? And, and believing that they love their family member and they don't want to wait till they get to the bottom yeah. and things like that. And I think that's at the heart of some of what you've said. Is that kind of a fair characteristic? <laughs> nailed it. That was that was yeah, nailed it. Um, yeah, it's it's this notion of rock bottom, which is not supported by literature. It comes from from the, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous program, which by the way, is a phenomenal program and helped me immensely. But uh, it was written in 1935 and there's a lot of science and research we've done since 1935. And it was a program written for people using alcohol. And a lot of times we use that and generalize it to people who are using heroin today. And the notion of, of saying, come back when you're ready or hit rock bottom could look very different for someone who has an alcohol use disorder than someone who's using fentanyl today. Yeah, that's very true. There's definitely a lot of change and difference in what's available even than what's available in the 1930s. Marijuana right. does the same for anyone who wants to know. Like marijuana is like 10 times more potent than it used to be. And I'm allergic to marijuana and I know that stuff. So you all should know that too. <laughs> so... How do I know I'm allergic? I'm allergic to hemp, people. So yeah. I can't, I can't be in a hemp bracelet. So <laughs> from my Girl Scout days, it's like, I have to stay away. Um, so yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> so substance use is a weird place for me to be, but it's, it's, it's okay. funny too, because people in recovery like to say, you know, well, I'm allergic to drugs and alcohol because when I take drugs, I break out in handcuffs and felonies. And you really are allergic to some drugs and alcohol. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I really am. And I know some people who are allergic to opiates, right? Like it's, you know, but it's a little bit more, you know, of a farm product these days. So it gets to be more interesting. Yeah. It's also a good example to, to prove the point that addiction isn't all about people just choosing because it makes it really easy for you not to choose to use cannabis when you have an allergic reaction when you do it. I, I tell people the same, my mom got sick when she took opioids. She, she had to take opioids after a procedure and she got sick to her stomach. And I thought, what a protective factor that is against becoming addicted. I'll tell you what, if I'd gotten sick and thrown up the first time I took opioids, I probably wouldn't have kept taking them either. It just so happened, my experience was the opposite. And you know, they filled my every desire, so. 
Yeah, I have many family members who have many other addictions. So, uh, you know, I missed the gateway drug per se in the family, but I, you know, I definitely have the genetics. I certainly have my caffeine addiction and other things that are stronger than most people would consider normal. So, but I recognize it, right? And it's an okay one because it's legal. And so I don't have to treat it per se. And, you know, my, my therapist would say otherwise, but um <laughs> It's actually a good thing. Um, and, you know, we self-medicate with so many things in the mental health world. I think that sometimes we look at self-medication with things like the caffeine. You know, you can self-medicate for ADHD all day long with certain levels of caffeine. And, and we go, but why didn't you get help sooner, right? And we ask that question. Well, the answer is for a lot of our addicted folks, right, that I couldn't because I had to be willing to go completely off of it. And if I had to stop caffeine to get treatment for my ADHD, that would never work. Right. right. You would be asking me to go completely <laughs> unusable, unwork. I couldn't work. I wouldn't be a good parent. So yeah. <laughs> I think you pointed out many times that is the the inherent relationship between mental disorders and substance use is when the mental disorder is being untreated or undertreated, then people are self-medicating. And that I'm super biased towards that kind of model because that was exactly my experience. I have been diagnosed with three anxiety disorders and I started experiencing anxiety about 12 and it didn't get diagnosed until 21 and my addiction started raging right in the middle there. So I think uh, that relationship is important to point out. Living out that diagnostic term of 10 years, they say from first experiences to uh, treatment. That is interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I'm gonna steal that. Statistic. Yeah, it's a statistic of about 10 years on average before people will seek any type of treatment for a mental health issue. And when I tell folks that in mental health first aid, their reaction is always like, I can't imagine being anxious. But then I was like, but you know, someone who's been anxious. You just sure. didn't, we didn't label it, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that it took me that long, but in, I really am grateful that um, I, I got some of the help so young. I mean, I think what I look at a lot of other folks I was in treatment with and, and the difference between them and me oftentimes is that they didn't get access to care until too late too much, or too much later in life. And what a fortunate thing to get access young, you know, really. Yeah. And to get treatment several times, right. And seek it as needed until you found the right one or the right moment that it worked out for you. I think that's the families and folks who might be listening, who are using drugs, maybe have a problematic use or not. Um, And that brings me to our resource question, actually. So I'll segue right into that. Um, one of the resources I wanna highlight first is this is an MHA Kentucky event. So we're gonna highlight our, our screenings tool. And I think it's really important. And it does make that difference between using a drug and using a drug and having a problem with it. Um, and I think that's a really important gauge that, that Dr. Ellswick has brought to us a couple of times throughout this conversation is, you know, just using isn't necessarily a problem. When is it a problem? Well, our addiction test actually is the clinical tool that tells you that right? It's the, the way that providers would say, okay, you're in the middle. Maybe it's a problem. We need to ask more questions or wow, you really have an addiction. We need to address that before we can really work with the rest because it's going to interfere with our ability to think with you or talk with you, you know, and, and it's a really good online free screening. It's at mhascreening.org. We'll put that note in the in link in the comments and in the YouTube page, page and all of that stuff. But are there other good resources that you generally refer people to, Dr. Ellswick? Yeah, well, uh, without any shame or hesitation, I would start by saying Voices of Hope. Uh, of course. <laughs> I mean, our organization, but but in part because it's, it's really useful for people who 
uh, it's, it's, it's beneficial for anybody in recovery. But what we're finding is we're getting especially a lot of traction with people who are using drugs and are either sober curious, they're not sure if what they have is actually a problem or a problematic relationship. So they're not people who are ready to dive headfirst into abstinence, but they're people who are ready to explore what improving their health and wellness could look like. And so um, definitely Voices of Hope is a resource that's that's useful. I would also just in general commend mutual aid meetings. And what I would tell folks is, you know, most often people are only familiar with like Alcoholics Anonymous and maybe Narcotics Anonymous. And that's phenomenal. They're great programs, but note that they are abstinence-based programs. And so if you have someone who's not really sure where they are, it may not be uh, the, the most conducive. Fortunately, in at least in my community in Lexington, we have dozens of other kinds of mutual aid meetings that are really designed to meet unique needs. So there are meetings that are designed for people who are on medication as a part of their recovery. And there are meetings for people who are actively using drugs today. There are meetings for um, you know, different affinity groups, LGBTQ plus groups, and, and really just to try to find a place that feels safe, that feels supportive, that feels like your kind of recovery. Um, so sometimes people will give the advice uh, if you didn't, if you go to a, a therapy session and, and you didn't like it, it didn't go well, don't give up on therapy, try a different therapist. And I would say the same about mutual aid meetings. Uh, they're not all the same and your experience at one might be very different than at another. No, I totally agree. Um, yeah. And finding some of those can be hard. So if you need help, there's Voices of Hope, MHA Kentucky Sappy to help as well. Uh, we do happen to be based in Lexington, but I do have numbers and information for across the state as well. So Hopefully we can work together. If that's something that you're interested in and don't know where to start, we can help you find the right folks and maybe for the right group if there's not one near you. Um, and if you're not ready for that, you know, we'll find someone who is. So that's part of my job as an advocate is linking up and empowering other advocates. So, um, and yeah, one of those medication groups is Double Trouble for Recovery. I helped plant those throughout the state. So, and a very little away. So love those, um, but they are still abstinence-based as far as um, illegal drugs. So that. That's a that's one of those blended meetings, right? It's not always for everyone. It's not where everyone is. And I think that's important to note and, and to be accepting of. And that's part of this conversation that I've really liked and appreciated. Yeah, and I appreciate the way you frame that because there's there's really no need to criticize any any mutual aid group. What they're doing in their own space is great and they're finding their own way to support people. The criticism is you can't just have one kind of support for all these different kinds of recovery. So yeah, I, I, exactly like you said, just gotta, gotta meet people's needs. I'm always telling them therapists are like dating. I think mutual aid groups are fairly similar, right? <laughs> you go to a club and it ends up not being what you thought it was. And it's like, <laughs> right? So it's trying them on, dating through that as you need to. <laughs> that well came said. up yesterday in a Medicaid meeting, actually. We were having, I was like, you know, you can date therapists. And they were like, I love that concept because it's <laughs> right? You, you shouldn't be divulging your deepest secrets to a random stranger right away, <laughs> unless you are, which, you know, I probably am, but <laughs> not everybody's like that, and that's all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, if we have any questions from folks live, I'll, I'll have them do those, because we have such a small audience, I'll have them do those off camera, um, and we'll edit that part out, but thank you so much for the conversation. I really think this is important, and We'll link some more resources as we think of them in the, in the chat as well and in the, um, in the show notes and in the YouTube comments. So folks are 
are feeling a little bit more connected. I, I know we never got to the family member question. I think it's similar kind of advice though, right? Kind of check out your, your local options and find what's right for you as a family member and what's right for your person. May not be what you think. Is that a fair statement to make? So. There, there are more resources than Al-Anon for family members. Yes, that's important too. And I think Voices of Hope has some of those. So really appreciate all that you all have done to increase that and, and all the work you're continuing to do, preaching about it, talking about it and bringing the research to the people. Thank you so much.